All right, Zig coming in on the top. Today on the show, we have Richie Ramone, an epic guest. We have a Ramone on the show. Richie played with the Ramones from 83 to 87, and he wrote six Ramone songs, including Somebody Put Something in My Drink. Anywho, he's on the show, and we get a little deep. It's cool. It was cool. I caught him right before a performance in New York. And uh, he spent a little bit of time with us right before, like, their show was about to start. Some minor slapback phone delays, but nothing too intrusive. And, uh, man, he's just a cool guy. He's a really cool guy. And Richie's got a lot going on right now. He's got a new EP out, Not Afraid. There's a limited uh, orange vinyl pressing of it. You can go to his website and get the pre-sales on that. He's also got a film out, Cheesehead the Movie, in which it's kind of like a B-horror flick. And uh, Rich, it's the movie starring Richie Ramone. It's rad. It's fun. Um, definitely worth a Amazon rent. Um, so you can rent that off Amazon. And there's a bunch of other films that uh, I think he's doing with the same team that are coming out later. One of the the B side to the EP, um, Cry a Little Sister, the cover from The Lost Boys, is on one of the films. Uh, Richie's got some tour dates in Ohio, April 6th in Canton, Ohio, at the Buzzbin. And April 7th in Columbus, Ohio at Scully's. Go to RichieRamone.com for the tickets. Um, we're going to listen to Not Afraid off the new EP, Not Afraid.
Not Afraid off the EP Not Afraid, Richie Ramon, available on all streaming platforms, and the vinyl you can pre-order for the special uh, orange edition. Um, but yeah, this was a really cool conversation. It was really short, really quick, but, you know, catching homie right before a gig. Um, it was an honor. It was an honor to talk to a Ramon. So, if you're in Ohio, Canton on the 6th, Columbus on the 7th, you gotta check out Richie's show. Um, also, there's a ton of other dates in other states. Go to RichieRamon.com. Chances are he's coming to you. Um, okay, so before we get into it, a little, uh, little bit of what I have going on. If you're new to the show here, I play in a band called C-Level, letter C-Level. We're playing April 29th at the Beachland Ballroom with the Quasi-Kings. And I'm doing a solo acoustic gig at the Beachland Tavern with uh, Mike Pinto. Um, and Uncle Gnarly, our good friend, will be spinning some uh, some reggae tunes before. Lots of cool stuff going on, friends. It's been a crazy week. It's been a crazy week. Um, if you haven't caught the episode before, we talked to a misfit. We talked to Doyle. <laughs> and today, a Ramon. And uh, next week, depending on how, th- uh, how, uh, how um, the schedule pans out, um, podcasty-wise, we might hear from a, a member of Fugazi. If not next episode, very soon, depending on uh, how some of these show things go. But definitely, if, if you dig this, keep on the lookout for that. If you guys can like, rate, review, subscribe to the podcast on one of the podcast platforms, it helps me keep talking to awesome guests and sharing their insights with you. And uh, dearly appreciate you guys tuning in. And here's my chat with Richie Ramon. What's happening, Dave? Hey, Richie, how's it going? Good, good. Can you hear me all right with the speaker? Yeah, I can hear you. Can you hear me all right? Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for taking time to do this, man. I really appreciate it. Sure. And the kind of... Yeah, it's been crazy driving in the city. You know, this is our only our fifth show, but all the yeah? driving is going to be brutal. So. Yeah, that definitely... There's so much traffic getting into the city today. It's fucking nuts. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Did you guys get hit with the snow? There were some, but only little flurries. Okay, well, it's not, it's not sticking. Where are you calling from? I'm coming. I'm calling from Cleveland. So this is the only fifth stop. Oh yeah, we started on um, Wednesday. Nice. Wednesday. Uh, where were we? In, in uh, Worcester, Mass. We started Wednesday. So. Okay, and how'd that go? Great. It's been going good. Last night, you know, it was sold out good show in Clifton. Tonight would be great. I mean, this is my home turf here a little bit, you know. Yeah. Oh. Awesome, man. Well, the, the jump into it, I wanted to start off by asking, um, the musical influence of Lenny, how did that, how did Lenny musically influence you? What do you mean, my brother? Yeah. What, did you read my book? <laughs> no, not yet. I well, how do you know who Lenny is? I did some research, my friend. Mm. Well, I don't know the musical influence of Lenny. The, you know, I was, you know, my father always said I was five years ahead of my time, but Lenny's five years older than me. So when I was like eight, he was already 13 buying records, you know what I'm saying? So, he, right. you know, I was listening to all that late 60s stuff and, you know, stuff like that from him. But, you know, Lenny was a horn player, so... Musically, mm. uh, you know, I was like around horn bands and, um, you know, funk and all that kind of stuff, you know, for, at an early age. So, 
there was no, you know, punk in my life as an early age, you know? Right, but there's plenty of syncopation then if you're around a horn player, man. Yeah, well, yeah, it's like <clears throat> I've, you know, I mean, as far as my influences and my studying and reading music and having teachers since I was eight years old, I ended up in a punk band that plays, you know, two beats, you know? <laughs> but it's physically, it's physically demanding now, you know? It's just really... It's nothing like anybody could really do. It's very difficult, you know. People try to like copy the Ramones or, you know, oh, ACDC, it's easy. Nah, it's not easy just because it's simple like that. It has a certain technique to it, and you know, uh, not everybody can do it, you know. Right. Well, there's something there's something difficult about making something simple, because mm-hmm. every, you know everyone can understand it, but there's. It, it it's like shaving away everything from the from the statue to get the figure. You know what I mean? Like, of course right. it's a person, but before it was a block. And you, you got to take uh, away certain, th- you know, you got to take away certain things to make it clear and so everyone can understand it. And there's a mm-hmm. huge skill within that. So, um, okay, so w- w- did Lenny play in any bands or was he just like a kind of academic horn guy and like did it in school? No, he played in lots of bands, you know, Tough Duck and all this. I'd go to the rehearsals and things like that, you know, and, uh, yeah, he played in many bands. He never, you know, did it, you know, he didn't do it nationally like I, I've been doing. But, yeah, he was a music teacher. He plays like everything. So, um, yeah. So what got you behind the kit then? The kit was, uh, you know, we had five children in the family and my mom made every kid learn an instrument for a sense of responsibility. You know, back mm-hmm. then we didn't have like video games and stuff like that. So I, I, you know, in kindergarten, I used to like, um, when you had recess, you go over to this dirty box and you pick out a toy and march around the room. But I was always pick out sand blocks or something that made a rhythm rather than just, uh, blowing into a fake trumpet or something. Mm. And, um, by, by, uh, let's see the fourth grade, I had my own teacher. And so it went, you know, that was the instrument I picked drums. So. I don't think there's one thing that made me, that lured me to drums, you know, it's just something inside, right? Right, right. Well, there's something with like drums and piano. It's like, I know how this works. Circle the stick or, you know what I mean? Stick the circle or push key down. It just makes sense. (laughs) That's awesome. So like after you, after you started studying a bit, because you've been playing in like bands since you were 17, right? Yeah, earlier than that. Earlier than that? 12? 12, I used to go sometimes with my brother's band to the Catskills and mountains up here and play in the summer to, you know, I sight read charts that the comedians would bring in, the music and stuff, you know, like 12, 13 years old. I was very young when I was doing this stuff. I had like a special ABC card that would get me into bars where, you know, youngsters could go where the liquor was served and, you know, and all the weddings and bar mitzvahs I played at a very young age and stuff like that, wearing a tuxedo. So I, I never had to work in Burger King, you know? <laughs> nice. Well, that's that's the payoff. That's the responsibility showing through. <laughs> the payoff is this, you know, people, you know, you don't get any of that shit out of a book. You know what I'm right. saying? Yeah. Live performing is when you learn how to, you don't, when you, when you play live, you don't listen to yourself. It's, you know, you listen to everyone around you. You know, people get so hung up on listening to what they're playing, you know, it's like riding a bicycle thinking about how to put the right foot and pedal the bike. 
I don't listen to myself playing. I don't even know I'm playing. It's natural. I listen to the guitar and the bass, and that's how mm. I do it. I keep trying to tell the people in my band, just listen to the other people, not just to your guitar. Right. You know, you know, so playing live at an early age and for so long is a real, you know, that's a real blessing because I know what to do, you know? Yeah. And it's interesting because, like, as a drummer, you're kind of like, one, you're behind, you're seeing everyone, what they're doing and kind of reacting to it. Everyone's following you. But if someone, like, if, if the bass player starts it off too fast, you're following however they started it off. Or if the guy drops his guitar or something... You, you compensate for that. And like having that seat is kind of like kind of conducting in a way. Um, did that like kind of like at that age, were you singing in groups too? Like, or was that like later on? No, I don't think I was really, well, seventh grade, I went battle the bands, you know, singing and playing drums. So I guess, yeah, seventh grade, we, I had a band, um, Oh, we had some kind of hippie name and the girl who worked player. <laughs> And a guitar. I don't think we had bass and I sang. Um, oh gosh, I don't know. See, that's in my book. I forget what it was. I can't remember. But yeah, so we went battle the bands and stuff like that. So yeah. So like, with a because like to be able to sing and play, that's like it makes sense that you can like kind of not pay attention to what you're doing to do that. When did like you notice that ability? Was it from doing all these gigs for so long? You're like, I don't have to think about what I'm playing. And I can attempt to like. No, to... It's, it's, you know, you know. There's a lot of things, you know, that are, you know, they occur naturally. You know, I mean, it's not a thought process. Oh, I'm not going to think. The only thought process was when I started playing drums at an early age. My teacher would blindfold me, so I would never look where the drums are to hit them. You know, and so I practiced with a blindfold, and that got me around the. You know, so, you know, if they're not set up right, you know, you know, like in the remarks, they weren't set up right because we come in, we come on with such thick smoke, you know, you'd have someone walk you to your riser and your drum sheet, you couldn't see nothing, you couldn't see the symbol in front of you, that's how thick the smoke was, so when you heard DD count, one, two, three, four, huh. if those drums weren't perfect, you'd like slice the finger or hit yourself on the rim and People would hear about it, but you know. Um, so yeah, you le I learned how to play blindfold. So that's a conscious effort. I would eat. I, he wouldn't let me. You know, he wanted me to eat with my left hand and everything, but not do my homework or schooling with my left hand. But do everything with your left hand to develop the left hand because I'm a righty. Hmm. So and we are eating with the left hand and whatever, make the left hand dominant. So you got the so you have the independence going. <clears throat> But the other thing just happened naturally, and yeah, in the wedding bands, we you know we were playing all the greatest hits out of you know the fake book they called it, you know. Yeah. And uh, so I was singing in that too and drumming. So, but this show now, you know, I you can't I can't do this show now uh, just singing behind the drums, you know. You you can't I can't be twenty five feet back there and engage an audience that way. It doesn't work, you know? So I started off and I play a few songs and sing, and then I'm in the front, and then I come back and play a few more at the end of the show, you know? Mm. Because uh, it just, you got to be out there with, with, with them, you know, hitting them in the head. Definitely. Definitely, so. because it's kind of like there's that barrier of the kit, 
you know? Yeah, the whole kit and the whole thing. I've done some shows where I remember um, we were in Europe. I was taking a plane to France for one show. And uh, we're all there, and I'm looking for the... Uh, the um, we had we had two guitar players at that time. Well, the one guitar player would play drums and then play second guitar when I when I was playing drums, you know. So he had something to do. I don't even do that anymore. But all of a sudden, the other guitar player wasn't there. He said, "Go, go do the gig as a threesome." So I moved those the kid out front that was hanging off the stage. People fucking loved it, you know, because they never saw like a drum kit like right on the edge of the stage. But it's brutal work to do that, you know, and. Um, you know, but yes, the wooden metal and being far back there, you're never lit up back there. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. it's just like, oh, here's like two people, and it's like, where's the singing coming from? It's stupid. So I don't, I don't deal with it anymore. That makes sense. It makes sense. And, and yeah. people there to see you, like, uh, you. I saw um, Mike Watt. He does this thing with his drummer now, and they like, right. they you, have you seen that setup he does? He like puts them on no. the side, and then Watt will be on the other side, and have the guitar guy in the middle. And like he'll try to like bring everyone like six feet closer, right? And like, mm-hmm. it, but you know the drummer he's not singing he's he's not the front guy he's not running the show he's there and Watts just like you appreciate the drum man you know, <laughs> yeah. But um, that's that's cool that's cool. So like, was that kind of like a, the transition from leaving the kit to kind of fronting it? Was that like a weird or was that more of a natural transition? Well. You know, you know, I'm a drummer first, you know, right. I'm not, you know, I'm, I don't do cartwheels out there or any of that stuff, you know, but I know how to deliver a message and I know how to entertain, you know, um, so that's why I'm out front there. It's all about being an entertainer live, you know, you yeah. gotta like, you gotta like say the right thing and um, show the love and let people know that you're really interested in them and look them in the eye, you know, and that's what, you know. It's their attention, right? It's yeah. the connection. When mm-hmm. did um, when did you meet Larry the or no Velveteen? So from playing in these kind of cover bands, when did was Velveteen like one of the well, first kind of like professional like um original groups? Yeah, I mean uh, it started um, you know I toured around. We would play Sheridan ends three for three weeks and then move on and. and I was doing a lot of different, you know, cover band stuff, you know, and then I wanted to get into original music. That's when I became broke, you know, so there wasn't original music. It doesn't pay anything. But it started out in 1980 with the White Boys and Ambulance and, you know, Steve, uh, Steve Miller, not that Steve Miller, but my Steve Miller. Um, So I started playing in that, you know, and that band, and then it was Velveteen and just kept moving along from there with a few different bands. And like within those, were you just supporting or were you helping write? I wasn't writing yet. I really wasn't writing songs until the Ramones, believe it or not. So, yeah, that's um, so when you. Joey said, you know, Joey. Yeah. Joey said, um, well, you know, we're doing a new album, Richie, so you better write. He said, I don't, I don't really wrote anything you know he said well you better write so you get some stuff on the record and that's how it started joey was amazing he 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 pushed me along he embraced me with open arms from day one and 
pushed me to sing more and write songs and it changed my life, man. So from like, from that, the intro and like when you first met him and like you guys are working on this new album, like wh- how did you go about writing for the first time after, after Joey Ramone was like, Hey, write some songs. Cause that's quite a request. I never, you know, I never enjoyed writing with people. Well, I was writing before that, you know, I wrote a song for Fred Schneider from the B-52s. I was hanging out with the shirts. Okay. You know, shirts were another band. So I did write a little before that. But um, but the Ramones, you know, I mainly just, you know, I bought a Casio keyboard, a little tiny keyboard, and I, and that's what I wrote on, you know, ding, 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 ding. And I wrote the song, and then I had Phil Cabano. He's a monster magnet now. All these years, I go to his six-story walk-up with my little cassette, uh, and he'd add, like, guitar on it. And we'd pull the keyboard off after I wrote the song. So, fun. That's how I, I, I'd be mining, and, you know, everybody would play the songs, and then you'd take a vote on what you want for the record. That's how it went. Okay. So, like, there'd be, like, sessions where everyone brings stuff to the table. Yeah, one session. One session? That was it for yeah. the whole album? No. Yeah, you bring to pick the songs. We go up to the manager's office, Gary Perfect. Oh, okay. Go so sit there, and everybody bought the material. So maybe there was a total of fifteen, and we picked the twelve or whatever that we were going to do on the record. So, yeah. Interesting. So there's kind of like a middle person there to kind of be like, well, no, that's it. Go with that one. Maybe, yeah. I'm sure he, you know, he gave his opinion. Mm-hmm. That's because I, I was wondering, like. Cause like uh, when I write stuff, I need I need something like some type of harmonic thing to like even come up with a melody. And as a drummer, I was like, I wonder, I wonder how, what he's using if you're playing guitar or like strumming this out on your own. But it makes sense with a piano because that's kind of like that. It seems like drummers have a much easier time getting that um, uh, two hands going, even if you're just tapping it out, you know, to write something too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I went to piano, and then, you know, now I play a little guitar and stuff like that. But the piano is everything. If you're a musician, you should learn how to play the piano, because it's, it's the root of all the evil. <laughs> um, so before you, before, like, leaving, or when Velveteen wrapped up or stopped, um, Larry, the, uh, the, the roadie from the Ramones, he introduced you? Well, how'd that pan yeah. out? He got me into an audition. Like I said, I used to hang out with the shirts. The shirts had a three-story flat in Brooklyn, and it was a recording studio and a den, and it was such a hangout place. And Larry was there. I think Larry lived in that house. And uh, it was an afternoon. I said, where are you going, Larry? Oh, uh, going to the Lord's audition. I said, well, tell him about me, you know. And he, uh, he, you know, he was writing for Mark and told him more about me. You got to get this guy, Richie Bow. He's in Velveteen, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, I came home one day and my cassette answering machine was a message from Monty Melman, hmm. the tour manager, saying, can you come down on three songs and come down next Wednesday? And that's, I think I still have that cassette tape. <laughs> so. Very cool. So that's how it went. So. Okay, so you guys get in there, eventually you get picked up, and like uh, when you're working on these songs, and like it right after that session when you guys decide what you're gonna do, 
and then it, mm-hmm. then it's like hashing them out, or they already like they're written. Let's go. Yeah, and then we go to the recording studio and practice them. We just play them before we record them. Yeah, they're done. No hashing out. No writing together. Zero of that. Yeah. Do you think that yeah. would have panned out into more? Uh, that wouldn't have panned out with that group, or because like it's it's interesting like to have like all these different kind of dynamics of tunes like on Too Tough to Die. Like it, it goes up and down with like there's like kind of a more pop tune, there's a more like rough tune, there's a more like a, a DD tune, like. Mm-hmm. So like would that would probably led to more kind of headbutting? You think if it was kind of a collaborative writing process, or is it more pure? No, I don't know. Okay. I don't know. I don't like collaborative writing anyway myself. I like it with one individual. And I found maybe one or two in my lifetime that I could do it with. One's dead and the other one was Dee Dee. But uh, very, very uh, rare that I should sit down with more than one person because everybody's brain is going a different way. I know what I want. I know what that sound like. And that's it for me, you know? Right. Go write your own song. Was so. I, I agree with that. I find it hard to kind of like... Like because it's such a it's such a vague process of how this happens. You like you have like either like a, a song seed, like some line that stuck out in your head, or a melody, or a rhythm, or some chord progression that you kind of just like harp over and like try to hash out. And like I find that the collaborative effort leads to something completely. Di- I think if you go into it with no expectations, it pans out better. Um, but if you're if you're really trying to get something out of your head, I don't think it quite happens until like maybe a post thing like here's the song help me structure it um so like writing with dd like what because you you helped him with dd king right mm-hmm. yeah i wrote the music he he wrote the lyrics okay it was great working with him because he he had notebooks full of lyrics and, uh, so so i did a lot of rap stuff with him cool and like, what was that that process like, or what did his process look like? Songwriting was he just always writing, like, or did he have like a like a structure? He always thing? wrote. He always wrote You know, he always wrote lyrics. I just said he had like a notebook full of words all the time. You know, he wrote poems. He was a poet, a brilliant man, a poet. You know, I'm not a poet. When I write words, it takes me a lot, lot longer for my subject material and everything. But he would write about his AA meetings and all kinds of shit. You know. And, uh, it was just great, you know. So it was sure. just life. I don't, I don't know about processes or nothing. I don't really go that way. Yeah, the kind of the kind of bounce off that, like this new this new EP you put out, like um, "Not Afraid." This song like sounds super super tight. The chorus is super catchy. The lyrics are really well written, and it seems like yeah, um, that's not my song. That's by Mark Diamond. That's Mark Diamond. Divorce. Okay. The dwarfs. He's even playing on it. Oh, no way. We were on tour together. I said, Mark, you know, I'm waiting for you to write me a song. And finally, after like COVID and everything, he said, you know, I got this song. And, you know, I heard it. And I was like, wow, interesting lyrics. And, um, uh, and, uh, and I, I did it, you know. And, yeah, that's Mark's song. Okay. It's tight, though. It's a good sound. It's a solid recording, my friend. Um, yeah, well, I hope so. Because <laughs> um, I was going to say, kind of coming from cellophane, it seemed like that dynamic was there. Of the, all those songs that were on that and the process of it, like uh, how all these songs build up, 
it's it, cellophane like it seems like every solo record just gets much more tighter in like how the structures of songs are coming and like mm-hmm. not afraid like i was like that's it it's right there um was the- i'm basically coming into my own with cellophane i mean you know my first record i was experimenting and then cellophane came and i'm coming into my own as an artist you know i'm starting you know took a while to really develop you have to start all over if you're the singer right. it's like a brand person you know so so i'm happy where i'm at now i'm gonna finish the record in july and i'll have my next album out early next year and then that should be it very cool are you working really with- happy about this next record it's gonna be great are you working with paul on it probably yeah. i'll probably record there because he's fast and you know Everything, everybody, you know, you do all this recording, everybody listens to it on the fucking iPhone speaker. So it's like silly to, you know, I personally like, you know, I have a board in my studio. I like the sound of, you know, an SSL or something, but it just gets too expensive and not worth it in the, in the 11th hour. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it, it is. It all is funneled through like small speakers or headphone speakers. <laughs> So when but it's you... in the mastering. I am Mauer Ma- Ma- Applebaum. He's great master, and he, you know, he 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 masters it on analog, you know, not digitally. And that's why it sounds so good like that. When you get it back, you know, from him, it's like a whole new ball game. And then when you get radio compression on it, it really sounds good. Rodney Bing and I was been playing it every week now, so I'll probably play it tonight. He's probably playing it right now, six o'clock in play. So working with Paul, like, does he like help suggest like some like kind of like harmonies or like vocal no. like no? He just like mixes it. If I ask him, he will, but yeah. he doesn't. Okay. He's just fast and he can edit fast. Like I'll go in on a weekend, cut you know ten tracks in two days, and then uh, you know do the singing and mix it. So another couple of days. Got to go fast. Right. Your phones too, you know. I cut, you know, fourteen tracks in just over a day and a half, and that was it. I was done. That's in, yeah. a day and a half is like that's like it takes some other bands like years to. No, get. you got to practice. In other words, you got to rehearse the songs. If you have your songs rehearsed, now you're just putting mics on it. But not everybody can play in the studio. The studio brings out every little tiny thing for drummers, for guitars, for anything, and embellishes you know, your mistakes like uh, by a hundred times. So when all your little clips, so you got to know how to be a session guy. Right. You know, that's why a lot of bands, you know, different musicians are cutting the records and they, they just play live. Lots of bands are like that. They right. bring in studio cats to record the record. Well, that was like all the movement in the sixties with like, uh, uh, the funk brothers, and like you know, like the ten, the the uh, Motown groups, there was a session band. Were you doing sessions younger as well? No, no, okay. Not really. Sessions. Doing sessions is a hard thing. Was a hard thing to do, and now it's nearly impossible because of the drum machines. So I didn't really do that. But anyway, this new record sounds amazing. Um, or new single. I know the new record's coming out. Um, one one other thing I wanted to ask you about. Um. Was I found it? I found it interesting. So, so you're writing with piano. Um, I heard a story or read a story somewhere that you introduced a minor chord to Johnny Ramone, and he didn't know how to handle that. 
No, he didn't, you know, he didn't like playing the minor chords. You know, I told him, like, it created suspension, so he did it eventually. But, it, you know, it was a little bit of a hassle. And was it, like, it's interesting, like, so you get you get in this, like, rut of comfort and, like, someone comes in and kind of shows you a new thing. There's usually kind of like, kind of like some, like, I don't want to even think about that, but then eventually becomes accepted. And it's interesting because like, it sounded like Joey did that for you with like writing, but you also did a lot for Joey in the sense of like taking him out and showing him places. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. I got one more, one more thing I want to ask you and I'll let you go. Cool. Uh, yeah. Cool. Well, thank you, man. I appreciate your time. Um, the one thing I want to kind of wrap up as on uh, wrap up on is you just you just did a film, a few uh-huh. films that are coming out. So what a was couple, it? Yeah. yeah, what was it like acting compared fun. to? It's, yeah, it's really a lot of fun because it's new. It's new for me, you know. I'm learning a new craft, and you know, so it's really a lot of fun. Lots of laughs on the set, and you know. That's why I did that Cry Little Sister, because that's in Cotis Ramar where I play a vampire. So I, oh, I, covered, okay. that the, I covered that for the movie. Um, that's, you know, on the flip side of the record. And that'll come out like Halloween, this movie. And there's a video for it, too, but I'm waiting to put that out probably in a few more months. And then, um, yeah, so it's really good. I mean, like, you know, I'm, on, I'm in Head Cheese, the movie, which is on Amazon right now. Uh, Amazon uh, Prime, if you have that, it's called Head Cheese the Movie, where I play myself working at a diner. So, you there? Yeah, 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 yeah. Just, Hold on, just... someone's. I just got to like. Um, okay, someone's trying to call on the phone. So okay, very cool. Um, yeah, that from that first dining scene to the next scene that follows right after it, it's a, it's a, it go you jump right in, <laughs> like. I watched the I watched the film the other night, and it's oh, okay. it's awesome. <laughs> um, I like the puppet yeah, things. Yeah, B-roll movies and stuff, but it's fun, you know. Yeah, yeah, but that's the thing. That, um, does the does performing help with acting, or has the acting help with the performing? I don't know. I don't. You know, these questions are so deep. I don't know the answers to that. I'm not. I don't. I don't really think that way in my life. I just do it. I just do, you know, yeah. if you have the hit factor, you're way ahead of the game. I have the hit factor. So, you know, if you don't have that, then, you know, it kind of limits you anyway as a musician or an actor. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to have something about you. You got to have something when that thing hits. Just looking at the camera, you know, that it's like, wow. You know, so... You know, you just got to have it, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Not everybody can do everything. I'm fortunate enough where there's uh, some talent that's not forced and it comes out and it's natural and it works and that's it, you know? Yeah. There's no there's no premeditated planning. I like acting because it gets me into reading more and studying the scripts and the characters and research, which I never really get to do, you know? Writing songs is a dark hole. It's a really uh, tough situation to be by yourself and in the corner and coming up with things and, you know, but that's work too, you know, like people, you know, think you write songs as you're walking down the street. Well, or you get writer's block. You don't get writer's block. You just get lazy. You got to go in that room and sit there for hours and write the song, you know? So, 
doesn't just pop into your head like magic. It's like any other job. This is a job. Right, just right. different. Well, that that's it. There's there's the okay. that thing that grinds it out. But anyway, man, I really appreciate I really appreciate you. If you don't get everything you got, you know, we could talk again. But I could feel, you know, I, you know, half hours is all I want to talk. See, the band's over there now, and I sit here for two hours. I got to relax my throat. No, I told I totally get it, and I know you. There were twenty nights, twenty nights in a row, twenty different cities, twenty nights. Yeah, that's okay. a lot. That's a lot. Of this full energy so show that just kicks ass, man. So tonight's gonna be a good one. Cause uh, you got a couple dates here in Ohio, and I'm excited to try to catch you at one of them. And um, but yeah, man, no, I really, I really appreciate. Yeah, let me know when you show up so I can say hello. We'll do. We'll do. Psych. Not the ending. All right. So um, there's a part two. There's a part two of this, and we're about to hear it in a minute. So at the very end there, Richie was about to hit his gig, you know, and uh, was getting worn out, didn't really want to talk too much, and I can totally relate to that. And uh, so I followed up with him. I had a couple more questions, and he uh, he made some time. And in between, uh, in between my gigs, I uh, sat and talked with Richie for a bit in the van, right? So it's going to sound a little different, and it's going to have me be a little more... Maybe a little more manic because I'm bouncing between gigs, but uh, but it was really cool. I was gonna splice it up and kind of put it in in what you just heard, but I think it flows pretty nice and like, uh, I, I don't know. I don't want to make it too too uh inauthentic. So this was our part two to our conversation with me and Richie Ramone. I should I should have done it with a I should have done it in a Walmart. That would have been cool, right? Throwback to the Doyle episode. Check that one if you haven't heard. Anyway, here's me and Richie. I saw. Um, that you played recently in the last couple of years with the late great Taylor Hawkins. So I wanted to know if you can share maybe any memories of that gig or about his character. Yeah, I never really played. I never played with Taylor. Um, I I met him at the CBGB premiere, but I never played a gig with him. I don't know where that came from. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, we never really played a gig. He was a good guy, you know. And uh, uh, there's a couple of times I met him, but. Um, no, I never played a show with him. Okay. You know, and it's just, you know, it's just, you know, fucked up, you know, with these, you know, he's had a little history of some problems in the past. And, you know, I think as we all get older, we got to be more, you know, a little more careful, you know, with yeah. what we have in our bodies, you know. You know, I've lost a lot of friends that way. So, but anyway, yeah, I never played a gig with him, no. Gotcha. I, I read that wrong, I guess, but. But yeah, cool, man. Um, another thing I wanted to like, kind of diving in when we were telling me about how songs would be brought up to the group, like you guys would kind of have a mm-hmm. session. When uh, Bonzo goes to Blitzburg was brought up. What was like the initial like thought hearing that song? Well, that, that... well Dee Dee wrote that, and um, you know everybody would come with their songs, you know. Yeah. And, but john um didn't like the title you know he he liked reagan you know as, yeah. you know he was he was a right winger and the rest of us weren't so uh that's why it got changed in my brain is hanging upside down <laughs> <laughs> so they didn't he didn't want it to be called bonds it goes to big book that's because so. that's like one of the all-time greatest ramon songs man mm-hmm. and like so was it initial like as soon as everyone heard it, did everyone know like, oh, this is gonna be this is gonna be a good one or um I think, you know, when we hear everything, 
for the first time, especially Joey, would always look at me and say, you know, um, this is the one, Richie, this is the one, you know, yeah. for all those records and songs, but none of them were really the one, you know. Yeah. He just he just really wanted, you know, some kind of commercial success at one point. And unfortunately, the closest they ever got was, you know, the Phil, Phil Spector album. Right. That was probably the highest charting album out of the Ramones history, you know, that had Baby I Love You and that stuff on there. But, um, but he never really got, you know, to see that. I don't know why. Mainstream didn't like us, so. Was it well? More trails. I think the Ramones changed more to music than mainstream would have allowed. Um, right. Yeah. I mean, go on. The thing I was uh, I was I was thinking about was like, the first record you recorded on was "Too Tough to Die," and like, or at least with the Ramones, and like, going into that, like Johnny almost got killed. Like that's like a intense way to start a band it was early on in my career so it's a funny story so <laughs> it's like you know i waited all my life for my wonderful break and a wonderful band i couldn't ask for nothing better and then like a few months in he gets his head knocked out you know and i'm like oh man this is unbelievable you know like you know but i went to the hospital and um you know saw him and everything and it was great he pulled through but you know, I thought that was the beginning of the end right there already, you know, because, yeah. you know, you really don't, you know, without one of, you know, I never thought like you know, even Didi could be replaced, you know, once that, that front line was gone, you know, you can keep flipping the drummers around, but, but they went on without Didi for all those years. So power to them, you know, yeah. CJ was a good replacement. And, um, you, uh, you and C, you and CJ played for the first time at Joey's birthday bash, right? Mm, was it the first time? Yeah. Possibly. I thought we did a show in Argentina. Oh, okay. The wow. first time I went to Argentina was um, in 1987. That was the first time Ramones went there. So we went back, I think it was February 4th or something. We went back on the same historic day, me, CJ, like all these years later, I think in 20. 18, I don't know, like 40 years later, I don't know what it was, but 30, 87, 90, like 35 years later, we played the same exact set uh, as I did in 87, so that was really cool. It was really fun to just play drums, you know, the whole yeah. show, not have to deal with singing, like, you know, I have to do now, but um, uh, it was a, it was a good, that was a fun show. I mean, people in tears and crying, and it was just, so we, you know, we haven't abused that privilege of our, when we play together, it's a big event. So we can get one or two of those a year, you know, try to do some more, but we'll see what happens. But yeah, no, and that's, I don't, that's what makes like the birthday bash and those reunion shows so special. Yeah. And like, and to be able, special in, Ar in Argentina where like rock bands like that don't roll through all the time. And I know the Ramones hit hard over there and like a lot of like, uh, like, southern america um or south american mm -hmm. states but um or states i'm losing my mind <laughs> um <laughs> but uh but yeah that's I don't, that's that's incredible um with with singing i you know once that it, it adds a whole nother dynamic like do i drink a coffee today you know that if not that's gonna ruin my voice later it's like a whole nother thing to worry about so 
I totally relate mm-hmm. to just being able to play and just get through the gig, you know, or just enjoy the gig. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, are you guys doing the birthday bash thing this year? We're doing something, you know, I talked to Mickey and he was like, God, it's so late, you know, with COVID, you didn't know what to do. So we put together this little thing at some small club where there's going to be 20 fans who have submitted that I'm going to play drums and I don't know who the rest of the band is. And they're going to come up and sing 20 different Ramon songs, sort of like a karaoke with Richie Ramon type of thing. So, and then there'll be, you know, other people in the audience, you know, type of thing. But we thought that would be fun, you know? So, you you know, it's, it's sad for Mickey because he doesn't know what to do on that day. I mean, if he, He's been doing this for 22 years, 20, I forget how many years he's had bashes. I mean, it started out the first ones in like a 3,000 seater and it's dwindled in time, you know, to less and less people. But, you know, you know, that, you know, he's, uh, he wouldn't know what to do in celebration of his brother that day. You know, it's been so long. So I, I felt, you know, I feel bad for him. So I came in and did this, you know. That's amazing. Like, otherwise he'd sit home, you know. Right. You got to do something. You got to keep celebrate those yeah. memories. And there's so many people that are moved by it. And you, yeah, there are. You've stayed mm-hmm. good with Mickey for a long time, right? Did you meet yeah, him before? Oh, yeah. I knew Mickey, uh, you know, back in the Rattlers and everything, you know. So there used to be the foursome that we would go out a lot when I when I joined the Ramones. It was, it was my favorite foursome. Yeah. It was Mickey Lee, Joey Ramone. And Richie starts from the plasmatics and and myself. And whenever we got in the elevator, you know, I was the smallest guy of that group. Okay. I'm six foot three and I was the smallest, which made it really <laughs> nice. I didn't have to crunch. Yeah. I could look straight ahead at people, you know, instead of looking down, hunched over. But I was the small, you know, Stotts was big, like six eight, Joey six five, Mickey six four, or Joey May almost six six, and me at six three. So it was a really tall crowd of guys roaming the streets of the east village back in you know the mid 80s <laughs> that's amazing um mm-hmm. how did um the uh the joey solo album that you recorded on how did like were those like demos that mickey had or was that a whole project joey was almost done with like how yeah did that... that was um it was demos that one producer had um and so um daniel ray Daniel Ray. Yeah, he held on to these tapes and there was a whole lawsuit that went down because they almost had to pay him to get these tapes. Yeah. And um and uh Ed Stasium took these tapes and you know, cleaned them up and took his voice. I mean, Ed did a really good job, you know, Ed. He did two tough and die, he did a lot of the early Vermont stuff producing. And um took these tapes and then we added because i think there was just drum machines on the original and then i went and i cut drums on four or five of the songs they used different drummers on that record he, you know bunny carlos and i forget a host of other guys and uh and that was something you know it was just like you know tracking over that and hearing joey's voice it was so clear it was like you know you could see him through the glass you know it was kind of sad and kind of be you know joyous at the same time recording those songs you know yeah i can't imagine that because that's yeah. that's your that's your your brother in arms you know i, I knew that you yeah. know i know that voice so well you know joey you know 
I never saw, I never heard Joey sing a flat note or a pitchy note. He had perfect pitch, yeah. ever, ever, ever live. Just go anything and watch him sing. You'll never hear like a funny note out of him. It's incredible. That is incredible, especially with all mm-hmm. the with all the sounds coming from behind you. You know, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Daniel Ray was kind of like the secret sauce of the Ramones. He helped out a lot, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to get too much with him. You know, okay. I had like a a beef with him, but you know. Um, he came in, at, you know, towards the end, and they were tired of paying these producers and stuff. And Daniel came in really cheap, and 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 did the, you know, a couple of records, and then he went out. And after that, got you know a lot of gigs out of, you know, after producing Ramones, you know, he did right. really well for himself. You know, it took off for his uh, producing career. So you know, all the power to him. You know, and now he's fine. He sold, you know, yeah. Johnny's guitar. So oh, he's snap. got like three quarter million dollars in his pocket. So he only paid 20 grand for it. Oh, so it's a nice investment, right? <laughs> right. That paid back. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I heard about that. I didn't uh-huh. know he sold it, though. I didn't know that was him. Yeah. It was an auction. It went for <laughs> yeah. a million. That was Daniel, you know. And, um, so, yeah, he finally dumped it. I mean, so, so he's all good now. <laughs> well, awesome, you man. can sit home and we us misfits still need to be on the roads you know <laughs> right but there's nowhere nowhere you'd rather be right <laughs> right nowhere like nowhere. man richie thank you so much for sitting and chatting with okay me. This, sure this means a lot and i really really right. really appreciate it, my dude okay yeah plug the show for us and we'll i'll do. see you up there that in the columbus all man. right all right richie take care my friend take care bye later